0: Amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, page 838 in the Pew Bibles. If you have one of those in front of you, you're more than welcome to utilize that this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you're more than welcome to take that copy and use it. It's a gift from our congregation to you. Mark chapter 3. We've been journeying through Mark these last few weeks. Uh, months, if you will, and in one day we'll come to the end of it. But God has been so gracious to us as we've really uh, sought to encounter uh, Jesus of Nazareth. What does it mean to follow Jesus and and who are we following in Jesus? And we come to a passage this morning that that perhaps is one of the most difficult passages, maybe one that may be even familiar to many of you that are uh, Christians here this morning who 've encountered god 's Word, uh, probably one of the most troubling verses is contained in in our reading this morning um, and I pray that we would deal um, wisely with it and and that we would grow from our understanding of it. but as we consider this passage this morning, I want you just to think, who is Jesus? Which was a question really that, that's not surprising to us. We we've encountered that question before. But the question I want you to really consider is is who is empowering Jesus? What's the source of Jesus' power? That seems to be central uh to the passage that we're gonna consider today is really identifying who Jesus is. All right, Jesus is the Son of God, He's fully divine and fully man, but but where does Jesus receive his power from? To do the things that he's doing. What is it that's motivating him, if you will, in in just a basic term? Who does Jesus work for? Who does Jesus represent? Who is it that Jesus is speaking on behalf of? Let's begin in verse 20. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons and he called them to him and said to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan or himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, well, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother and sister and mother we consider this passage this morning, we just want to look, if you will, at three groups of people. Really, we're confronted here with three different groups of people, three different groups that react to Jesus's identity. And we're going to consider in time as we move through this, how they react and, and perhaps how you and I might grow from understanding how they were and how they react. The first group of people I want to start with is the, the scribes that came down from Jerusalem. I want, to, I want to consider now what Mark has done here is, is kind of in typical Mark fashion. Mark likes to, he likes sandwiches, you know, the sandwiches you eat. You got the two slices of bread and then you got the meat in the middle. Well, that's what he does here. He's got two slices of bread. And we're going to consider the bread here in a moment, which is Jesus's family, right? So he begins with family and he ends with the family story. But I want to begin with the middle, the meat in the middle there, the scribes who are coming down from Jerusalem. And it's with intention that Mark says that the scribes have come down from Jerusalem. Uh, Throughout Mark's gospel, he is painting Jerusalem in a light that is not so good. He's painting Jerusalem in a light that it's corrupt and broken and that they have given themselves up to idolatry and rather than worshiping the one true God, they worship traditions and rules and man-made commandments. And so we see that these men, these scribes, have come down from Jerusalem. Now, we've encountered these scribes before in Mark's Gospel, and just as a way of clarification, these were basically the religious leaders, um, and, and most likely they were the, uh, the lawyers for uh, the, religious, the religious party, the leaders of that day. So we've got the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, and, and in a third group, the Sadducees. And We haven't really encountered them yet, we will later. But but the scribes would have been the experts in the law. They would have been the law experts. They would have been the people who, if you wanted to know chapter and verse where something was in the Old Testament, they would have been the guys to ask. They would have been the guys. They would have been the religious experts. They would have been the know-it-alls when it came to the Bible. And so, um, when they come and they confront Jesus, these are men who are well equipped with scripture. They're well equipped in arguments and being able to prove uh, certain arguments. And for all intents and purposes, these men would have been well educated and would have been very intelligent in their ability to handle cases, uh, just like perhaps modern lawyers are today, uh, very gifted in the art of language and communication and the ability to argue points, right? Uh, what we use, which would have been foreign concept here, but, but what we consider reason or logic, right? So these men would have been gifted in the ability to, to make a, a strong argument or, or make a logical argument. Right? This is all important as we consider what happens in their confrontation with Jesus. Uh, so these scribes come down and they begin to prod Jesus. And, and we find what they, they're saying about Jesus, right? Notice what they say in verse 22. Mark tells us that these men come down and were saying that Jesus was possessed or is possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Now, uh, not a word I'm sure you're familiar with, but... It, it, we see in this passage that Beelzebub is really a word that refers to Satan. Notice what he says here. He says, "And he called them to him, that's Jesus said in perils. How can Satan cast out Satan? So the context really tells us that Beelzebub is really another name for Satan. So, so in essence, what they're saying is that, hey, Jesus is possessed by Satan. That's what they're saying. That's the claim that they're making. Now, uh, if you're new to, the, new to where we've been, we have encountered several times so far in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is is casting out demons. So by word or by touch, Jesus is casting out. There's there's men and women who Jesus has encountered that are possessed by evil spirits or or unclean spirits or or, or demons. Okay, and Jesus has cast them out, and he has said, "By my authority, as the Son of God, I have authority over you." And I cast you out. So last week, we saw that. If you just want to look with your eyes back up to verse 11. And whenever an unclean spirit saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And then notice verse 12. Notice the authority that Jesus has. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus is exercising authority over this. Now, friends, what I want you to notice, and this is very important, is that they that the scribes and the Pharisees never deny that Jesus was exercising demons that Jesus was ca- they don't deny that Jesus is a miracle worker and that he has authority or what is perceived authority over demons they don't deny that and the reason I say that is because we want to remember that believing in God and trusting in the gospel isn't just accepting the facts. Isn't just accepting the reality of the situation, right? So so oftentimes Christianity is communicated in a way that all you have to believe is a is a set of facts about Jesus, about God, about what Jesus did, that he died and was buried and he rose again, right? Well, here's the thing. The non-Christians that were living in that day wouldn't have denied any of what I just said. The the, the demons aren't denying that Jesus is a Savior, Satan does not deny that Jesus is a Savior. He, he doesn't. He, he just doesn't trust that he's his Savior, right? There's a difference. There's a difference there. So I want, to, I want you to notice that as we go throughout. Notice how the protagonists believe facts, but there's a difference between believing intellectual facts and actually Uh, believing in the gospel, trusting in the gospel. And we're gonna, we're gonna see that in the third person, in these third people that we encounter later in the story. And so, so we see these scribes are coming down and, and they're saying Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. That is, that he is by the prince of demons casting out demons. So in essence, what they are doing is they're questioning what is empowering Jesus and his ministry. They're questioning, Jesus, what is the source of your power? What is it that empowers you to cast out demons? And that's what they're really accusing or, or questioning Jesus on here. And, and so they're saying, hey, Jesus, the source of your power, the, the, the where you're getting your authority from, isn't from God, but from Satan. And so they're accusing Jesus of being one in league or in union with Satan. That's what they're accusing him of here. Hey, the reason why you're able to cast out these demons is because hey, you're one of them or you're possessed by one of them or you're 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 a satanic guy, right? So 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 they they pretty much say that Jesus is a satanic dude. Notice then how Jesus responds to this. He says he tells them some things in parables. This is really the first time in Mark's Gospel that we're encountering this, this idea of a parable. And in a, in a couple of weeks, and really next week and the weeks ahead, we're going to deal with what is a parable and, and how does Jesus use them. In short, parables are not you know clever stories that help give uh, meaning or understanding, but they're actual clever stories or, or, or illustrations that hide the truth. They're for people who don't believe. Parables are designed to mask the truth from those who have already decided in their hearts that Jesus isn't for him. That's what Jesus uses. We'll see that next week in Mark chapter four. So Jesus tells some parables. Notice with me the parables that he tells first. Hey, how can Satan cast out Satan? What Jesus is saying through these parables is that your logic doesn't make any sense. He's like, this makes no sense. This is ridiculous that you're even accusing me of casting out demons by demons. And notice what he says. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. He's like, that is so silly to even think. Why would Satan rise up against himself? Why would Satan try to cast out himself? It makes no sense. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Uh, this passage, by the way, is made famous by Abraham Lincoln. This is the passage that he uses when he gives his famous Emancipation uh, Speech. A house divided cannot stand. Uh, this is where he's, you know, misquoting this passage. But, uh, uh, but nonetheless, it, it, it is the point is clear? The logic is clear, right? A house, which would have been a uh, most likely the reference here is to some sort of uh, dynasty or some sort of uh, political power, right? Uh, you know, uh, the, we could even use vernacular in our language, right? The house of representatives, you know, in our own country, divided against itself isn't going to accomplish anything, right? We see that illustrated in our, in our political system, right? Not able to do a whole lot when they're divided, right? Uh, when the house is divided, they cannot stand, right? And that's clear, maybe in our own lives, when our houses, our own personal families are divided, uh, they, they can't stand. So Jesus is saying that, okay, let's just back up for a moment and consider the logic of what you're trying to communicate here. You're, you're, you're foolish. You're foolish. What is happening here wasn't what we see as an internal conflict, but rather an external conflict. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is saying is, is quite radical here. He's saying that, here's the deal it's not an internal thing. You, you've misunderstood the situation. Uh, what you've misunderstood is that what I'm doing, it, this isn't an internal struggle between the, the authority of Satan and his demons, right? That's not what's happening here. What this is, is an external attack upon the kingdom of Satan. That's why he says that first the strong man must be bound, right? Then he may plunder his house. in Satan is a strong man. I don't want to discount the power of Satan. I don't want to discount the power of, of, of satanic and demonic influences. Uh, even in Jesus' day, I think really, you know, as we try to understand what happens here, we're like, you know, well, I don't see a lot of demon-possessed folks today. Uh, why was there so many here in in the Gospels, why was it there were so many demon possessed? Well, I really think what happened was is that Satan sort of emptied hell, and uh, because the Son of God was there. I mean, they, they clearly this was a this was an attack. This was an affront against Satan. This Jesus's presence was a uh, was the beginning of the end of Satan. That, that's what we see happening here, and Jesus is saying, "Hey, look, this isn't some sort of attack from within." but an attack from without. And so what we're beginning to see here is that the logic of the scribes are broken, that they're, they're blinded from seeing the truth of Jesus' miracles and His authority to cast out demons. What we see also here is encouragement for our own souls. That Jesus is stronger than Satan. That the power of the cross Isn't that Jesus went unwilling to the cross? Jesus isn't the strong man bound. No, rather Jesus binds Himself in order to destroy the strong man's house. Jesus is a willing sacrifice. Satan had no authority ever over Jesus. Ever. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. and and oftentimes we think, oh my gosh, Jesus, what did, you, know, you let Satan win. Oh friends, it was in the cross that Jesus was declaring victory. And then through the resurrection we see that that victory was, in fact, accomplished. Because he didn't stay dead. If he had stayed dead, then, well, Satan was the stronger man. But because Jesus is alive today, he demonstrates that he is stronger. Consider also what Jesus is saying If you're saying that I am working for Satan, who do you work for? Who do you work for? I think Jesus is confronting their own brokenness and sinfulness. And He responds with them with this tragic and often confused statement in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter; but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse thirty reminds us of why Jesus makes the statement he makes about an unpardonable sin, all right this unpardonable sin I remember as a as a young kid, Teenager growing up in church, this was like a fascinating thing for some reason. I don't know. Um, I remember we had many long discussions about this passage and thinking about it. What is, you know, have I committed this unforgivable sin? But I want to consider a few things before we we address unforgivable sin. I want you to look at verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. What is Jesus saying here? I think Jesus is contrasting their sin. He's contrasting their sin from the, the sin that He has come to, to die for. Right? There's this hardness of heart that they're confronted with. Jesus is contrasting that with all other sin. And He says all sin will be forgiven. We see in this statement the glory and the beauty of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That Christ's death on the cross is sufficient to save from all sin. There's not one sin that, that, that sort of prevents, G, like, oh, you've just, you, you, you've exasperated me, you've sinned one too many times. No, we see here grace and mercy that past, present, and future sin is forgiven. Friend, we see assurance here. There's no amount of sin in our lives that is too great for God. And he qualifies it. it, Whatever blasphemes they utter, whatever attack, blasphemy is sort of that attack upon the character and nature and glory of God. Friend, you could have lived your whole life sinning against God in, in, in horrible and terrible ways, but he says it doesn't matter. My grace is sufficient to save the worst of you. Grace upon grace, he says. I want to be clear. He doesn't say here that all people are forgiven. He says that all sins can be forgiven. It's a matter of ability versus what we see in 29, which is an inability or an unwillingness to say God is sovereign over whom He will save. And I see in this passage the beauty of that in that He chooses not to save some. He chooses, though He could have, He would have been perfectly just to have, not all people are saved. So what does this mean? What is this unpardonable sin? This this sin that God will not forgive. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. And as we think about this passage, we, we begin to think, well, what is so special about the Holy Spirit here? You know, what is it that is the Holy Spirit like more God than Jesus? Is he more authority? Is he have more? What, what's the deal? What, what's happened? What, why is the Holy Spirit so special? Why is he so highlighted here? Well, friends, I want you to just turn back one, maybe two pages in your Bible and go back to Mark chapter 1. And you'll understand what Jesus is saying here. If you try to interpret this verse apart from chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, you're going to go real crazy here. You'll go go off into tangents. I want you to see what Jesus is saying. In verse 9, he says, In those days Jesus came down from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. When the scribes and Pharisees and all the others rejected Jesus, based on the the proof manifested in His life by the Holy Spirit, they were rejecting God. They were rejecting the Father. Right here in this passage we see that the Father says that through the Spirit... Through the Spirit here, I will manifest my pleasing in my own Son. That is, when you see my Son work, and you see my Son do miracles, He does it by the power of the Spirit, and He does it as a a display of my pleasure in Him. And so when we or others reject the work of the Spirit, we're committing this unpardonable sin. And friends, I think what, what he's driving at here is one who has the evidence before him and and, and can see the evidence, can see the miracles, can see the, the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus of Nazareth as a testimony to his divinity and reject it because of his hardness of heart. He he is as if Pharaoh himself, seeing the miracles before his eyes, his heart is hardened and will not let the people go. That's what we see here. These men are so hardened in their hearts, so blind to the world around them and to the sinfulness of their own hearts that they cannot be saved. And so as we consider this passage, I know what happens. You're thinking this morning, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit in my life? Friends, just by the fact that you're asking that question is evidence that you have not. This is to reassure your heart this morning. If you're you're thinking like, have I done this? Have I sinned against this great God? Um, You haven't committed it. I just want to assure you of that this morning. I also want to... uh, Give a word of warning here. Be cautious applying this to people and their lives. This is the Son of God who's saying this, uh, not you or I. Um, but I think it serves as a warning to us a warning that in our own uh, pluralistic and universal world that we live in, we begin to find it. He says that. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, no, not never, literally. No, not never has forgiveness. No, not never will you ever have forgiveness, he says. There, there, there is the reality of an eternal sin. There, there is a reality of, of an eternal place where sinners go. And the Bible calls that place hell. It's a place of, of eternal destruction. And friends, it is a real place. (laughs) Oprah is wrong. We don't all go to heaven. Jesus of Nazareth said so. Not me. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. But in the midst of that, He offers grace. That there is hope through the Gospel. That if you will repent of your sins and trust in Him, you will be saved. And so know that there is grace in Christ. That there is power. That that there's nothing in your life today that is preventing His mercy and grace. He can cleanse us. Though we may be as scarlet red, He can wash us as white as snow. Friends, that is the assurance here, but do not miss the warning that He gives us. Sin is serious because sin is deadly. And it leads to an eternal damnation. We see also a second group of people here. The second group of people is Jesus' family. Back up to verse 20. Mark says, Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when it's... Family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Uh, Jesus's family here is portrayed as ones who are preventing Jesus from doing ministry. Uh, for our former Catholic brothers and sisters here, uh, this passage alone, I believe, undermines uh, the doctrines and teachings about Mary uh, being sinless. I believe here in this passage we see and the context tells us that Mary was there. That Mary was a part of the prevention of Jesus and his ministry. That Jesus is being accused here by his own family. And friends, I want to remind us that even our own families may prevent us from following Jesus. Even our own families, and our own lives, there may be hindrances to our faithfulness to follow the gospel. Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And he persevered by his own family. And if you want to read more about this, you know, maybe this afternoon you can read John 7. To see how his brothers just mocked him, made fun of him and just said, Jesus, you're not good. If you want to be this popular dude, you need to do certain things. And they're just terrible towards him. And But friends, we know that the hope of the Gospel, that even James, his brother, would come to faith later and lead the church in Jerusalem. And so there is hope in the midst of that. But I want you to notice then in verse 31 what he says. And his mother and his brothers came. And, and they were standing outside, you know, Jesus is there, the scribes, this whole episode of the scribes happening, some of his followers are there, a crowd was sitting around Jesus. Picture this in your mind now, Jesus is sitting around, there's this mass crowd in this house, we don't know how many, right? And, and the crowd's saying, hey, hey your, mom, your mom and your brothers and sisters are outside, they want to they talk to you, right? Uh, they want to see you. Um, actually, they're saying you're nuts. Uh, they're kind of worried about you. Why don't you, uh, you know... And Jesus says some of the most profound things here. Look what he says. He says, now who are my mother and my brothers? Now if you just pause for a moment and think about that, uh, you might have said, well, Jesus, you are crazy. What are you saying? Who are your mother and have you forgotten who they are? But Jesus here in striking fashion, as he always does, he says, who are my brother and my mother? Who who are, who's my family, he says. Is it the people that are outside my biological, my blood? Is that who my family is? Is that who my is that who who it is? Is that is that who is saved? No, he looks around at those sitting, his disciples, and he says, y- "You here, here are my mother and my brother and my sister. Here, here they are. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother." For in family and religious things will not save, but only those who do the will of God. That's the third group: repentant sinners. Right? What makes a church? You know, often we get confused in this department. Uh, 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 people will heap upon Christianity like, "Oh, you guys are hypocrites," and "Oh, you're not perfect," and "You want everybody to be perfect," and "You got to be perfect." All these. No, friends, what, what distinguishes the, the church from outside? Oh, we're still sin. We are all sinners. I'm a sinner. deserving of God's wrath, He is perfectly just to condemn me eternally. But what differs is we are repentant of our sins. We've turned and trusted in something much greater than our sin has led us to believe. See, our your sin, I, I, my sin, it, it whispers things in our ears and tells us that, that if we go down its road, it will only lead to greater happiness and greater joy and greater satisfaction. We're like the man in, in Proverbs 6 that goes down with the adulterous woman. She lures him and he thinks it's all going to be good. No one will find out. We're all good here. It's only going to lead to happiness. But but what we find, and, and friends, if you're a Christian this morning, you know what I'm saying here. You you feel it. You know when you fall into sin and you you go down sin's terrible road, you're left empty and unsatisfied and say, that was a waste of my time. Why did I do that? Why did I think that? Why did I say that? That, that? There's no joy in sin. But that is the great lie that Satan has deceived us with. I say all this to say what distinguishes sinners apart is, is their heart toward their sin. Are we like David and say, against you and you only have I sinned? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned against. And only you can fix it. That's David's hope there. David doesn't try to clean himself up and, and fix his own life. No, David goes broken before God. And David was the king of Israel. He was God's man. And he was just as broken as we are. For whoever does the will of God is in the family of God. What is the will of God? What is the will of God? I think Jesus tells us, chapter 1 and verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. If you want to know what the will of God is for your life, it's to repent of your sins and trust in a sacrifice much greater than you'll ever be able to do. The sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross who died in your place. He paid the penalty. He bore the wrath of God that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. And friends, that mercy is available to us to all who will turn and trust in Him. Friend, I want to leave you with this word of encouragement. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, you're in the family of God. You're a brother and a sister. And that's why we use that language. We don't use it because we're just weird. Uh, uh, we use it because it's true. It's true. That, that, that's not cult language, okay? That's, don't get afraid when you hear that. Uh, you're a brother and a sister. And my question to you is, do you treat each other like brothers and sisters? Do we treat each other like like we have a common Savior who died for their sins just as He died for our sins? That He bled for Steve just as much as He bled for me. That He's a brother in Christ. And so I'll treat Him as such and sacrifice as much. Friend, we are much more through faith in Christ. We're a family for His glory and our eternal good. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for the patience You have with us. Oh, Father, we are so often quick to explain and justify our own sin. But we may we fight that temptation today and trust in Your eternal grace that You have in Christ. And Father, may we be reminded of this warning of sin and how hardness of heart leads to an eternity apart from You. Father, may we warn our friends and family, may we warn those around us that those that have the truth are accountable to that truth. Father, may we trust and grab hold of the Gospel and know that your grace is greater than all our sin we pray this in Christ's name amen let's